Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast, Andre. Uh, it is another day. It is actually Monday where you are. It's Sunday evening where I am, and we are uh, back at it. And Andre, where are you right now? I, I imagine you're still in Sri Lanka. I am still in Sri Lanka, Ryan. I've told you I'm coming back on the 29th. I don't know why you don't listen to me at all, but you should become a better <laughs> listener, Ryan. It'd be great for these interviews. But yes, I am still in Colombo, Sri Lanka. COVID is peaking in this country, so it is the absolute wor- best time to come uh, to this country for a nice little vacation. No, but seriously, yeah, the hospitals are being overrun. Uh, the government's racing with the vaccines. And Colombo, the city, the capital is basically deserted. Uh, so it is very interesting to be here. It certainly speaks, I think, in my view, to the sense of vaccine privilege we have in the U.S. I mean, we threw away, what, 67,000 vaccines in Alabama. And so many people here are like literally scraping and lining up for vaccines. So hopefully, you know, hopefully this vaccine situation in Sri Lanka turns out well. And I have a lot of opinions, strong opinions on the people who aren't taking the vaccines in the U.S., especially when we're seeing half the world suffer with this. But yeah, that's me in Sri Lanka. I've been waking up at 5 a.m. Uh, lately. It's better than waking up at 3 a.m., which I was doing earlier. So I'm clearly still jet lagged, but I'm eating a lot of good food and gaining weight, which is not good. I'm not happy with the weight gains. Ryan, what about you? Where in the country are you? You were in Missouri uh, on Friday, and now you're in where? I am. Uh, I'm in Kansas at the moment. I'm and about to head back to D.C. Uh, and so I've you know been on vacation for a little bit. And so yes, I, I'm kind of losing track of days, Andre. So I'm not sure. I guess when in August it is, but clearly you're not back yet. So it's not the end of August. Um, and so yeah, you know, kind of. <laughs> well, you know, fortunately, I have you know a, at least another year of of school left, and so I'm not uh, in the same position as you. Um, but that putting that aside, you know, and enjoying the kind of the end of summer as school approaches yet again, and you know, COVID again, right? I mean, I was uh kind of just surprised to see how many maskless individuals I saw in Southwest Missouri, which of course is one of the you know many states that is is seeing. Right, exactly. Is is seeing a huge resurgence of COVID. Of course, you know, I'm a Michigander from Michigan. Michigan's had its own struggles with COVID. Um, heading back to DC um, very soon, and so they um, again are back under a mask mandate. And so the whole country, just like much of the world, is now having to grapple with COVID yet again. Yeah, in Sri Lanka, they're actually forcing people to get vaccines. Like the the police will really? hunt you down, and they will take you to a vaccination center if you don't get vaccinated. And honestly, like with the way COVID is going on here, it's probably necessary. And I mean, in America, obviously, we can't do that. But in Sri Lanka, they're doing it. And uh, they're not really taking, you know, a no for an answer at this point. I, I did not know that. I mean, again, you know, as we talked about with, it's interesting with, to with be the, the Philippines. Yeah, of course. I mean, it, right, having that on the ground experience, I mean, kind of seeing it, what it's like in a different country, their experiences with COVID. I mean, as we talked about in uh, What in the World recently, we talked about the Philippines and how uh, Duterte in the Philippines is, you know, cracking down on, on COVID by, you know, undergoing some anti-democratic type policies. And it's effective in some ways, but also, you know, what's the trade-off, you know, your, the trade-off for your your civil liberties, for forced vaccinations. But of course, in the United States, you know, we we're all very much trying to get the entire country vaccinated so we don't have to go through this any longer. Uh, but of course, the government is not forcing people to do it. They are, you know, of course, you have private companies and the government in some scenarios, um, you know, working from a, a workplace type of, you know, restrictions or, you know, requirements, and especially schools, right? I mean, so we have requirements as, as students to get, you know, vaccinations, um, of course, with some, you know, some, right, exactly, some some limited um, exceptions to that. But uh, yeah, it's, it's quite different in, in much of the world. Yeah. I mean, and the other thing I'm noticing here is that there's a lot of, there's a ton of misinformation that's going about, about, you know, vaccines, about, you know, varying celebrities or politicians who may have died of COVID, but who are actually still alive. And uh, the government's been blaming some of the recent COVID spikes on democratic protests that have been occurring in the country. Uh, protests, I think, done by some students and stuff. I think that's 
merely political in lens. But uh, yeah, I mean, the police aren't going to arrest you. They're going to strongly suggest you get your vaccine. But yeah, it's it's fairly interesting to be here on the ground. And I'll probably be talking a bit more about that on What in the World as we sort of see this COVID situation progress. But Ryan, uh, we have a great conversation today with Pete Newell. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, you know, Pete Newell, uh, I'll just give a quick background. He's a retired U.S. Army colonel, was a former director of the U.S. Army Rapid Equipping Force, which is no longer uh, actually uh, in service. But what it did is it provided the U.S. Army with the cutting edge technology and deployed it into the field and war zones in order to ensure that uh, our soldiers are as, as equipped as they can be to take on some of the most challenging aspects of war fighting. This include robotics and drone technology. Uh, and so it's a fascinating conversation with, with Colonel Newell, uh, who is now the CEO of BMNT Inc., which is sil- a, a Silicon Valley-based innovation company. They're also an early stage tech accelerator. We talk about his experiences in, in the U.S. Army, uh, how he kind of transitioned into defense innovation. Of course, his experiences since leaving uh, government service, since um, retiring from the military, and uh, how he's helping Silicon Valley and the government come together to ensure that the United States is not only on the uh, on the you know cutting edge of innovation, but also ensuring that we uh, are not out um, we're we're not being that we're you know competing effectively with our adversaries as well, such as China. And this is a great extension uh, from our episode with Steve Blank, where we talked uh, about defense innovation and. Uh, Steve, of course, is a partner of Pete's uh, in some of their endeavors. And and they're also both very much involved in the uh, phenomenal program Hacking for Defense, uh, of course, uh, which has been, you know, in partnership with the Department of Defense and uh, certain universities in the country. So it's, it's a great conversation. Uh, certainly sort of follows a strand of a couple of interviews you've been doing with Steve Blank, of course, uh, who comes at this from the Silicon Valley perspective into this national security avenue. And then, of course, Pete, who's coming at it from the defense perspective, but now involving himself in Silicon Valley. So it's like two ends of the coin that sort of come together together that are to meet. And of course, sort of uh, draws again on a very early interview we, we did with uh, Dan Hubert, who used to who runs a Modus, which has to do with a lot of commercial drones and so on. So we'll probably be having more conversations with folks like this that sort of tie in the private sector to national security and the defense uh, and the defense sector as well. But also really just talking about battlefield to the boardroom uh, principles, battlefield to the boardroom experiences. Yeah, exactly. And so we'll leave it at that. Uh, Andre, I'm looking forward to hearing more about your uh, adventures in Sri Lanka, but we'll save that for next time. So everyone, please enjoy our uh, conversation with Pete Newell. Colonel Newell, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We actually talked to your colleague, Steve Blank, just a, a handful of episodes back and we talked about defense innovation there. Uh, but we're you know very much looking forward to our conversation with you. So thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the invitation. I, I'll try and keep the bar as high as Steve. So we'll see how this works out. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so Colonel Newell, I want to start uh, by talking about you and your career, kind of your upbringing, how you came to join the U.S. military, and really how you ended up being the director of the U.S. Rapid Equipping Force, which is a, a unit within the Army that I, I believe most people probably don't know about. Sure. Um, so, so the I'll try and give you the short answer. Um, I was a really crappy college student, you know, back in the early 1980s, and uh, actually enlisted in the Kansas Army National Guard when I was 18 as a means to pay for college, uh, and as it turns out, a means to find a little bit of direction in my life. So there was a period back there that I call the Dark Ages, where at one time, I was either homeless or sleeping on people's couches, and you know, I found over time that if I had a calling, it was in the military because I just I found that the my days were different, the work was different, um, and I enjoyed problem solving every every day. So when I finally did graduate from college, I went on active duty and ended up uh, at Fort Bragg as a young second lieutenant. Um, Flash forward a, a lot of years, I spent most of my time as as an infantryman in tactical units. So, you know, platoon leader, company commander, 
but I commit or brigade commit or uh, those types of jobs. I had a couple of uh, uh, detours. Uh, I spent uh, a period in the Pentagon as a watch officer in the National Military Command Center. And, and in fact, uh, I was one of the watch officers on duty on 9 11. Um, so, so I've, you know, I've had an opportunity to learn a lot of things and, and see a lot of things, but, uh, you know, the transition to, to being the director of the army's rapid equipping source, which is really, you know, the army's skunk works, um, came about as, as, as an accident. You know, I was, I was literally a brigade commander in Iraq when, you know, then the four star in Iraq who was leaving general Ordierno. Uh, dropped by and said, "Hey, I love your work. Love what you've done. Yeah, yeah. Let me help you with your next assignment." <laughs> and the next thing I know, I got a phone call from somebody that says, "Why can't be in Washington D.C.? Can't tell you what the job is." Uh, it turns out that they have this. Literally, as as new senior leadership comes into the Pentagon what they call the black book, and it's essentially the files of the people they're nominating to be the aides or the executive officers, the four stars, the sec def, and a bunch of other people. And so my file landed in there, and, and when you know, they got done playing musical chairs, uh, my file was still there. Yeah, and I, would, I was just fortunate that the senior leaders in the Army at the time you know, wanted to figure out what to do with me. And they had two jobs, one that was not the best in the world, and then the rapid equipment force. So they said, we're going to put him over here where we can keep an eye on him. And so I ended up rough. Uh, I literally had never heard of it and had to Google it to figure out where it was going. Um, so it was, a, it was an interesting departure from my, my career pathway. So, Colonel, can you sort of tell us, uh, for those of us who may not necessarily know what it does, what the U.S. Army Rapid Equipping Force actually does? What gap does it fill within the military and so on? Yeah, and I'll put it in the past tense because they no longer exist. Uh, you know, they were actually supplanted by the Army Futures Command this past year. The Rapid Equipment Force, when it stood up uh, in the early days of um, the war in Afghanistan, was intended to take emerging technologies that were available in the commercial world and rapidly adapt them to solve uh, problems on the battlefield that, that there was no system that would do. Um, so the Rapid Equipping Force was largely responsible for the explosion and the use of um, handheld or deployable robotics. They were responsible for the mass deployment of handheld or small unmanned aerial systems. They played a major role in the, the eventual procurement of MRAPs or the mine-resisted anti-protection vehicles that, that became a multi-billion-dollar program. Uh, they played a significant role in in all types of um, devices intended to counter uh, improvised explosive devices. You know those homemade mines and things that were so devastating to us in both uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, and it. They truly have this this absolutely um, Mr. Gadget-like closet of things that they tried and tested and very successfully deployed uh, over a 10-year period of time. Certainly a fascinating component of the, the U.S. Army when it was in existence. Um, I'm, I'm curious how uh, the U.S. Army actually sourced or acquired these, these technologies because, of course, no, there are, there are dual-use technologies available out there on the commercial market, but how do you, you know, change those technologies and implement them in the field? So I guess it's a two-part question, Colonel. Sourcing acquisition and actual implementation of these technologies. Yeah, and I actually, and I'm going to correct the question and answer the sourcing and acquisition is not nearly as hard as getting past the requirement system. And I think, you know, way too many people chase the acquisition system as if it's broken. It has issues. Um, it is, in fact, the requirement system that screws us up so badly. And if you think about it, the requirement system presupposes that, that it can perfectly write the requirement for a device or a technology to employ on the battlefield at a future date. Don't you imagine going to Google or somebody like that and say, I want you to write the requirement for a product you're going to deploy three years from now. 
you would be laughed out of the building. The, so, so the challenge became, how do you get people into theater to look over the shoulder of, uh, the shoulder of soldiers and, and Marines and others and rapidly understand the problems that they're facing because they change on the battlefield frequently. So, so how do you, how do you see or anticipate the new problems that are going to arise? Translate those problems into language that is understandable by both defense and commercial people, then use that translation to rapidly um, find a group of people who you can incent or incite or um, corral into actually doing something about the problem. And then it becomes an acquisition problem. Okay, I got the answer. I proved I'm working on the right problem. Now, how do I get it on contract and how do I pay for it? Those last two are a hell of a lot easier than the first ones I described to you. And, and that became the crux of what I did at, at BM or at REF. And quite frankly, that was the impetus for, for building BMT. It was that rapidly identifying, translating, and sourcing the problems so that we were working on the right things and we were attracting the right technologies and the right commercial people for the right reasons. So certainly in terms of attracting the right technology, that's always a lot of hard work. But what about the people who sort of composed uh, the rapid equipping force? What types of skill sets were necessary to make this really work as well as it did? You know, there were, I'll say, four groups and, and it was almost like four tribes. You had four tribes that you had to keep in the room and negotiate uh, a peaceful arrangement with. Um, one is it required operators, you know, people like me who deeply understood the battlefield and had recent experience and had um, networks and connections with uh, units that were deployed and units that were about to deploy so that you could gain access to uh, the problems that they had and gain their trust so they would communicate with you and give you real data. And in many cases, so that they would take on your experiments and trials and actually give you feedback back. Um, next to the operators, you had to have obviously seasoned acquisition and contracting specialists who could run programs and supervise contracts that I would call fragile. And, and it's not fragile as if they fall apart, but it's you're you're trying to rapidly bring a group of people together who don't typically work together who speak different languages and you're trying to keep them on a very, very tight timeline to deliver something while at the same time, you want to recognize the opportunities to accelerate that timeline. So it, it took a, what I would say, um, uh, superstars who understood risk, were willing to mitigate, manage it, but also understood how to drive results from from projects they were working on from an acquisition or contracting standpoint. The, the third group, I would say, were um, scientists and engineers who could look at a problem and disaggregate it into its most basic components from a technology standpoint or from a UI UX standpoint, and then rebuild that in a language that other people would understand and use that translation to actually look for um, use cases in the commercial world where there were technology being employed against things that were similar to that. And then do an assessment of those technologies to see which might be best suited for being ruggedized or integrated or deployed to the battlefield. And then finally, the last group is what I would call um, dyed and blue long-term civilian program managers who who despite the, the frequency of people um, at the operator level changing through the organization could be the keepers of the system. It's, it's almost like the OS. It, it is an operating system that allows you to source things from the battlefield, curate the right problems, do discovery on, on the problem, then a potential solution, then a pathway to deliver, then you know, incubate a... Um, a potential solution, and then how to actually scale that. Um, that took somebody who actually watched that system and kind of managed it long term. So the fourth group was, you know, what I would say is 
Dyed Blue DA civilian and, and contract folks to help make sure that the system was optimized and running all the time. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned the, uh, the various technologies that have been kind of developed through um, the rapid equipping force, whether it be handheld robotics, uh, unmanned aerial systems, vehicles. Um, I, gu I guess my question is, Colonel, are these particularly used in longer ongoing wars such as Iraq and Afghanistan, or are they used in you know, mission-specific, in-and-out type, you know, special operations um, type you know, examples where you, you know, have just short use cases versus the longer use cases of a, a drawn-out conflict? I, it, it was all of the above. And, and the way I describe it is there were three distinct categories that you looked at. And, and the challenge sometimes is you look at a problem and you realize the underlying technology for that problem is changing so fast that you don't have a long time to develop a solution and deliver it. Because by the time you deliver the solution, the problem has changed so much that your solution is obsolete. Um, so I, I call those um, credit card problems. And basically what I said is if you find a 70% solution to this problem, buy it and just deploy it. Because every time this problem pops up, it's going to be a different issue with the same thing. And it's not worth turning that into a major program. Um, that was one. The second one was what I would call environmental problems. And, and there were problems that said, as long as you were fighting, in a high mountain desert environment, I don't care where in the world it is, as long as there's a battle in this type of area, you're going to have this type of problem and we're going to have to develop something to solve it. Um, those types of problems, what I would say, landed in the bucket of theater sustainment. Yeah, and because both the battlefields you talked about were CENTCOM, there were things that were endemic to CENTCOM, probably not going to be a long-term program or record, but might have been. That, that needed to be used you know, in that environment. And I'll and I give you an example of one. Um, one of the things that we discovered, I know probably 2012, in literally sitting in the headquarters of a large brigade waiting for a conversation or something, I was sitting in the tactical operations center next to the battle captain, and he had this huge map, and, and on it was a lot of graphics, and they, clearly they were about to run a major operation. So I, I asked him to explain what they're doing. And, and he said, we're running a resupply operation to our forward operating bases and then up to the combat outposts up in the mountains. And, and as you listen to him, he said, you know, we have to do this about every 20 days where um, they have to get a certain amount of supplies to the forward operating bases. You then have to transload them and break them down and get them to the to combat outpost. And unfortunately, a lot of those combat outposts were resupplied by donkey. Um, or by sling load or something like that. But as you talked him through this thing, he said, you know, the, the challenge is this is a 125-mile-long road, and in order to bring resupply down here, we have to seize the high ground, clear the valleys adjacent to the road so that we can clear the road so that we can get supplies there. Um, and he said, invariably, somebody gets killed every time we do this. You know, we looked at that, and I was spending, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars on um, counter countering IEDs against things like that, and we were fresh out of ideas. And then it dawned on us that they, all this was being done to resupply a combat outpost that had maybe 10 people in it. You know, there were 30 of those combat outposts, but, but it needed to come So. We went back and looked at it and said, you know, why don't we just cut the resupply? Why don't we make these completely self-sufficient? Water, power, and the removals. The three things. Fresh water, access to power, and a way to evacuate sewage. And, you know, eventually that turned into a $100 million, um, I'll call it clean energy program. But we were able to get those brigades to the point where the resupply wasn't every 20 days. It was every 60. So those are the type of deals. That's a uh, environmental problem that has to be solved. The the last group are those things that are enduring. No kidding, going to be around forever. Um, a great example is perimeter security, guard towers. You know, we've we've had a soldier standing in a guard tower with uh, a bow and arrow, a musket, a rifle since two thousand years ago. 
and we still do. We still have to secure our bases and things like that. Um, those types of problems, while you could spin out solutions to, were long and enduring and were worthy of spending a lot of money trying to solve and, and fix. So I now want to move the conversation into the topic of defense innovation. Uh, so in general, right now, how innovative is the Department of Defense? What problems do you currently see with how we're sort of driving innovation through our national security apparatus and our defense uh, institutions? I would say that um, in, in times of war, we are phenomenal at innovation. And in times of not war, we're not so good at it. And, and you have to understand, you know, the, the Department of Defense is uh, a highly regulated enterprise that is designed to be super efficient with the use of its national resources to do 150% of its mission with 50% of the budget allocated to it. So it's just, it's constantly in competition with itself. The, the challenge with innovation within DOD and, and largely within the government is, is first and foremost, um, there is no doctrine that connects the word innovation with warfighting. And, and, you know, the first mistake you see is when you say innovation at DOD, people immediately start thinking about weapons buying and they look at the acquisition system. But they don't look at the, the entire spectrum of where you source your problem from um, and how you run a parallel system of innovation alongside an enterprise system that's designed to scale things rapidly. And, and, and quite frankly, the cycle speeds are different. There are different rules in both systems for the way you educate people, the amount of risk they accept, how they spend money, and the expected outcome of what comes from that system. And, and invariably, what, what DOD tries to do is they try and take the legacy enterprise systems rules that were written, quite honestly, very well for what it does and apply them to the innovation system. And they routinely fail over and over again. Rather than creating a doctrine for innovation as a mission is part of its job that then drives the allocation of resources for innovation, that drives um, education, drives the organizational structure and the policies and regulations that monitor it and ensure that it's, you know, that it's done within the law, but more importantly, ensure that it delivers um, new capabilities back to the enterprise um, at a speed and scale that is appropriate with where we find ourselves. I know that's a long answer, but that's, that is in and of itself the crux of the issue. Without a doctrine, there's no organizational structure, there are no resources. There's certainly no education that allows you to create um, new service members and new civilians who, who are professionals at doing it and retain them in the services rather than, you know, jettisoning and, and heading to work for you know, bigger tech companies. I mean, this is a concern Andre and I have kind of long talked about on the podcast um, and something that, of course, our, our adversaries do quite well. They have, you know, this, this military civil fusion in, in countries like China and to some, you know, respect in Russia as well. And so does the United States military need to work more with the private sector in order to ensure that we have some sort of competitive edge, because of course, you know, we have these distinct systems of civil and military, but of course, you know, the US government depends upon the commercial world for a bunch of different products and services. And so uh, where do you see the, the easiest ways in which we can kind of move the US military and the Department of Defense uh, more broadly towards a more competitive edge uh, in this space? Yeah, so the premise for BMNT and the way we built it was that we wanted to change the dialogue between the government and we started with Silicon Valley. Um, but mostly it was about teaching the government to better articulate their problems uh, and to um, better create pathways for a dialogue of importance between the government and commercial entities about solutions that made sense for both. So I go back to that practice of source the problems, 
and curate them so that they absolutely make sense and the best, most important ones rise to the top. Then you look for the digital twin in the commercial world that, that, that matches it, and you recruit from that population to help you solve your problem. Meanwhile, you're building an acquisition and contracting pathway that allows you to get money into those companies that, that doesn't break their commercial models while you're trying to get it back. If, if we could just simply do that at scale, we would create that civil military fusion that, that we, we so aptly knew. Now, there's some great organizations who I would call doing absolute heroics, starting with DIU, AFWorks, NavalX, um, and a host of others who they're doing it, but they're doing it at tiny scale. And, and not at, at a scale that would ever keep up with uh, the potential for what the Chinese are doing because, you know, they've, they've taken their entire apparatus and they're doing that. The, the advantage of being able to find those digital twins is that um, the government is trying to acquire commercial technologies, which means the premise is you have a commercial company that has a viable commercial business for doing what it does. Now, if it has a viable commercial business for doing what it does, asking it to jump through hoops and do cheetah flips to work with the government is a distraction that most will walk away from. So, so on the government side is you know first getting to the problems, changing the dialogue, but they also have to change their business model because the commercial venture world is not going to change its venture model so that it can work with the government. So, so the question becomes, you know, where can you change um, contract policy or acquisition or requirement systems to do something in a different system rather than just use the rules that were designed for the enterprise legacy um, weapon system delivery platform? I, you know, Steve Blank and I see that as a very simple conversation. But but it seems to be so complex that people are um, either afraid to start or can't seem to wrap their head around how would you organize that and control it. Which goes back to you know my last answer is without a doctrine for this, it's going to continue to be a lot of one-off small experiments that some of which will great and some of which won't won't last very long. So in terms of talking about, you know, commercial enterprise and so on, how have you, what sort of takeaways have you drawn from your own military career, your own uh, personal experience as a military leader uh, that you've brought into the private sector? Well, um, so I will tell you the concept of sourcing problems and uh, validating not just the fact that you're working on the right problem, but the problems need to be conditioned to a certain degree before they're ready to bring on to uh, a platform to solve. But that process of, of expending a great deal of energy uh, looking for uh, and prioritizing those problems and then making sure that you're working on the most important things that are ready to be worked on versus trying to work on the most important things. Is, and going through the process, ensuring that you have the human capital put against it, you have the time put against it, and to actually get to solutions. Um, that's one. I think uh, the concept of risk management uh, and the realization is that um, if if you try and mitigate, completely mitigate risk at one level, you're not mitigating risk. You're just pushing it to a different level. And as a, a as a leader in combat in, in war fighting, where I've had um, more soldiers killed and wounded than I would like to remember. Um, you get to the point you understand that you can't perfectly mitigate anything. But if you don't accept a certain degree of risk early on, you are simply pushing the risk down the supply chain to where it absolutely can't be handled. And in fact, you're creating a bigger problem than you have. Um, and I think that, that that concept forces you to spend a lot more time talking to, training, observing, and working with the younger folks in your organization so that the middle management and senior management um, are able to deal with things that are more appropriate for the level. Now, in organizations that try and, and micromanage things and mitigate everything, as you'll find a, a workforce that is incapable of anticipating and reacting to the changes that happen you know, too fast for them.
Colonel, you, you wrote a very interesting article um, on your BMT site about uh, takeaways for startups. And I would just want to list them off because I think every entrepreneur, everyone in the private sector should be familiar with them just because they're, they're while they were kind of developed because of your experiences in the military, they're easily transferable. And so the first one is your enemy may be shrewder and faster. The second is shorter cycle times, reduce casualties. Third, have an arsenal arsenal of MVPs, minimal, minimum viable products. Um, Four, craft great stories. Five, put the right people in the room. And six, harness conflict, conflict productivity. Um, these are all things that I'm sure you now uh, experience at BMNT. Um, and so at, at BMNT, are you, um, you know, advising uh, tech companies? Are you working with the government? Who are the clients at BMNT? And are you actually able to implement these six takeaways with your clients that you um, are working with every day? All of the above, especially the conflict one at the end. Um, and I laugh at that. The so so the answer to your last question is yes. BMT works with um, large enterprise government organizations, usually who are trying to fix or create a sustainable innovation practice. So the Navy, the Air Force, uh, intelligence agencies, the Department of Homeland Security, um, and and several uh, civilian companies, as well as some of our partnered nations, Australia, UK, uh, and several others. The if I say there is a, a typical uh, client out there that is you know at the CIO CTO level of an organization where they are under intense pressure to do things differently, but to deliver scalable solutions at a much faster rate than the organization was ever built to do. Um, and that's where the concept of the innovation pipeline, when you come in and, and install it someplace that that talks about how you source problems, technology, people, ideas, and con-ops and create opportunities for them to collide that allow you to look at, 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 at potential pairings that are interesting, how you source problems at scale and then rapidly curate and prioritize them and then connect that with a platform that allows you to do discovery, which is where I pair with, you know, Steve Blank's work. Because we see, you know, lean methodology is one of the most beautiful platforms for helping you validate that you're working on the right problem or getting the problem right, validate that you have a potential solution according to the users or the people in, that have the problem. And then you have a pathway by which to deliver it. And then how all that flows into a system of incubating, no kidding solutions that you can deliver in scale. And then finally, how do you transition it? That process is what we do with large organizations. Um, because we do that, we spend a lot of time educating people. So we've been asked to build education courses for you know, several of those services. Uh, I'm working on one right now for the Navy. Uh, where where the intent is to build a cadre of people who speak the same language that sounds like a doctrine now, so that they can scale the work they're going to do on one cross-functional team to about 16 others. They want to make it repeatable, but they want to start to professionalize that. Um, that's where the bulk of our work is from. Now, because we've done that, we've looked at all of the activities and tools and methodologies that are involved in it in any type of innovation and have learned what certain activities and methodologies and tools produce that's value, valuable to other things. So we've now figured out how to blend them together, whether it's design thinking versus lean versus scrum versus something else in the right pattern so that it actually makes the innovation system more effective and helps them um, turn gut instinct into cold hard facts that drive insights that allow people to make decisions about what moves forward and what doesn't. And and we've done it in a matter that actually disciplines the entire system. So um, if you look at it, any of the the defense innovation platforms have been stood up in the last eight years, whether it was DIU, AppWorks, Kessel Run, uh, Naval X, AAL, and other things, you will find BMT's footprint or fingerprints in that organization on the early days as, as we help them get to someplace. Um, and we just continue to do that. Um, because we're so good at that, 
Um, we have learned how to help organizations better talk to companies. And in many cases now, we're helping the government actually find those companies so that they have the mass that they can get to which actually start finding the right technology. So um, it, it's part enterprise services innovation work and part gumshoe massive network activation. And then quite frankly, you know, as we've seen gaps in this process, we have built tools to make those innovation systems work uh, much better and much faster. So hacking for defense is a pro it's a great project that you've been working on with Steve Blank. Uh, for our audience, uh, we talked about hacking for defense with Steve Blank in our previous episode. And just so you know, it's a university course that is sponsored by the Department of Defense, uh, which basically instructs its students to work with the defense and intelligence communities to address all of these emerging threats that the United States faces and all these security challenges. So, Colonel, uh, how do you view the success of hacking for defense of this great course? And what do you see in the next iteration to improve the program and now expand into something greater? You know, so without regurgitating, you know, what you probably learned from talking to Steve is you realize that um, hacking for defense was an accidental collision between um, Steve and I with some other folks as we were working on an experiment to prove that this idea of finding a problem and translating it so commercial folks understood it would help you attract people to help you solve it. Um, we actually ran this experiment in Palo Alto, I think it was 2015, um, using borrowed military manpower. Since we borrowed a bunch of Stanford students to prove we could do this. Um, and we got to the end of it, and it was, it was actually incredible. So the goal was to get the students to work with people in Silicon Valley to come up with a problem statement that was exciting to investors. And if they pitched their problem at an investor, if they snatched it out of their hand and said, I'm going to email it to my portfolio company, it's great. You know, you got an A+. Plus. Um, and it was a phenomenal experiment. And we were out briefing it to, um, I actually met uh, Steve Blank in the middle of this, and that's, that's where Steve and I you know, had our first set of epiphanies that, that led to hacking for defense. And we were out briefing to, you know, the senior folks at Stanford and the government clients and others. You know, we had to admit that we didn't think it was scalable because we were borrowing students during spring break to actually work on it. You know, during the school year, they're busy. We had a, a student in the back of the room stand up and say, you know, wait a minute. Had, had this been a class at Stanford, I would have taken it. So. Borrowing on Steve's Lean Launchpad, which is the class he'd been teaching at, at a number of universities, you know, looking at the commercial startup industry, we reformatted it to be a problem-based course. And it was predicated on, on our ability to source problems and problem sponsors for the government and get them into the classroom and get students to form teams and compete with one another to take problems and then get into the class. So, so we had you know, three hypotheses. One is that we could get the government to give us problems in an unclassed environment uh, that students would be interested in taking a class. And quite frankly, that, that Stanford would, would allow us to teach the class. And, and we predicted then that you know, if we get this class, we'll teach it next year, and, and that would be great. And we were surprised that we had... 14 government agencies show up with 28 problems, um, and we only had room for eight. We had over 190 students uh, expressed interest in taking the class, and we only had room for 32. Um, and Stanford not only supported the class, but, but actually got it at the graduate level, and actually got it into this course, into Stanford, onto the catalog, and had university students in the class in less than nine months. And by university standards, teaching a new class in nine months is like light speed. It just doesn't happen that way. Um, before we taught that first class, we had other universities show up and say, we're interested in teaching this class. And I think the second year, we had five teach. We thought, as, as we created the partnership with the National Security Innovation Network, and as we spun out the nonprofit, uh, the Common Mission Project to actually administer the course, that it would be really cool if by 2023, if we had 50 universities in the United States teaching them. 
Um, <laughs> we have 50 this year. So we're four years ahead of the power curve in terms of the number of courses we're teaching. But at the same time, the, the methodology that the course is built on and the way the course is built has become attractive to solving all kinds of other problems. Um, so what was originally hacking for defense now shows up in the UK as hacking for the Ministry of Defense. They have 20 universities teaching this year. Uh, but in the UK, they took it a couple of steps forward. And they said, we're going to do sustainability and climate also. And we're also going to do hacking for the national health system. And we're going to create a master's degree in national security, innovation, and entrepreneurship. In Australia there this year, they're just getting started. They just finished their first course. They're going to launch several others. Um, the Department of Homeland Security has their own version now. Uh, they started with FEMA, then went to the Critical Infrastructure Cybersecurity Agency. And, and coming up this fall, I think the Transportation Security Administration starting. Um, we have done uh, climate classes, folks, on oceans at several universities. And, and I think there's a long line of ass of, of how to rewrite this platform to serve other hard intractable problems with the premise that we're going to attract some of the best and brightest minds in the country to get involved in better understanding the government's problem, but also get them excited and working on it. Regardless of whether they enter government service or they go to work for a tech company, that excitement is necessary in the country to keep people engaged and keep solutions formatted. So, um, I, you know, when people ask me, you know, about the expectation, I would say, you know, this is the a classic demonstration of catastrophic success. It grew way bigger, way faster than we had ever imagined. Um, and its success is just absolutely incredible. Uh, if you think about the number of students and the number of problems and the number of people involved in the course, and the fact that 70% of them continue to work together after the course is a form of national public service that we had never imagined. Yeah, I mean, what an incredible success. And I just wish I had the opportunity to engage in something like this when I was in college. Uh, but uh, one final question, Colonel, um, because I sure, I'm, I'm sure you've inspired so many people to engage in public service through Hacking for Defense and your other work, what advice would you give to those interested in working at the intersection of national security and technology slash innovation? Because, you know, while many um, young people go to work for big tech companies or you know, work for in software development, they may not be aware of the opportunities available in, in the public sector, but also in the private sector who support the public sector. I, I say get involved and get experience. So even if you have a day job and you're interested in this stuff, find, find a problem in your community because it's the same pattern. Any, I, you know, I live in Austin where you know, homelessness is just, it's atrocious. Yeah, and I look. I have two grown sons who who are you know really interested in doing things. So you don't have to have a problem that exists two thousand miles away. You walk out your front door and take a look what's going on, and then find places where you can gain experience at this what I, problem extraction thing, problem curation. Because you know, if you know the way Silicon Valley works, it, it's based on the premise that you can find a problem that that touches a mass of people and come up with a solution and build a company or product around that and, and sell that company, you know, three years from now for a billion dollars. But it's all predicated on the fact that you have an idea and you recognize a problem and can combine the two in the same space. Then it's a case of developing people skills, how to talk to people, how to interview them, um, how to create an MVP, uh, how to how to test an MVP and do analysis of the data you're getting back to make decisions about a hypothesis that will lead your discovery process to a better understanding of problem, a better understanding of potential solution, and a better understanding of how to deploy and scale that solution. That the ability to gain that kind of experience exists everywhere. So it doesn't have to be some big, huge thing. And in fact, some of the best learning comes from small, mundane problems that people have, you know, particularly in the workplace. So on that note, thank you so much for joining us. This was a very enlightening conversation. Uh, and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Please, folks, check out Hacking for Defense. Please check out uh, some of the colonel's work at BMNT. It's, there are many awesome lessons to be learned. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. I appreciate the time.
And that was our conversation with uh, retired Colonel Pete Newell. Uh, Andre, really just you know a very interesting conversation about defense innovation. Of, of course, we began with talking about uh, the, the colonel's own experiences in the U.S. Army, particularly um, as the director of the Rapid Equipping Force, kind of how it came together, some of their really crucial developments that they came uh, to create and ensure that uh, that the soldiers in the U.S. military are are really just you know at the cutting edge of, of defense innovation. And then we also talked about right de- innovation within the DoD, ensuring that you know the the Defense Department can be working with the private sector to um, improve because there are a lot of problems with procurement and the acquisition process. And as someone you know who knows that the best are, are, are those who actually serve. And so you know we we have all these conversations um, with many individuals in the space about how we can improve this system to ensure that we're properly competing with our adversaries because other countries like China for example, have this civil military fusion, which is something we talked about with Steve Blank. We kind of briefly touched upon with, with Colonel Newell. Um, but what I found what I found kind of most fascinating are these takeaways for startups that uh, Pete had of, you know, of course, serving in the US military, you have a lot of, you know, great life lessons, but also great lessons for organizations. And so we talk about these kind of six takeaways for startups that I think are useful for anyone, whether you're an entrepreneur, a small business owner, or maybe you know working for a company, any way in which you can kind of improve the organization in which you work in or lead. Absolutely, and I mean you know it's not just for those folks who are in national security, defense. The six principles can really apply anywhere. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So um, everyone, you know, be sure to check out Pete's current work at BMNT. Uh, make sure to check out his work um, across the, the United States and world with this Hacking for Defense program. Um, and, and as always, make sure to stay up to date with everything coming out of the podcast. This is, of course, one of our Monday episodes. A great episode actually coming up next Monday with Daniel Levin, who talks a bit about hostage situations in Syria, which really goes into his uh, book, uh, Proof of Life, a great read, very great read. Actually, uh, a dad of one of my good friends from UChicago. And the guy is fascinating. He is absolutely fascinating. So keep uh, keep your eyes out for that coming out on Monday. And of course, you'll be hearing from us on either Friday or Saturday, depending on how good the internet connections are in this country of Sri Lanka. Exactly. All right. Well, everyone, thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time. Thank you. See you, folks.